Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Guys Who Law. I'm Jesse Weber. I'm Andrew Eisberg. And Andrew and I decided to do something a little bit different this time. We decided to interview somebody, right, Andrew? Yeah, we're uh, we're turning into real professionals here. Well, easy. No, we're not. Get it, getting some big guests. We had one interview before with uh, Cosby's prosecutor, but this is our this is our second. Yeah. Um, but today we have a big guest, um, one of our own, a host of, like you, a host from Long Crime Network. Yeah, his name is Vincent Hill. Vincent, say hi. Hello, everyone in podcast land. Yeah, and now I, I want to just give a quick bio to Vincent so everybody knows who we're dealing with here because we're very lucky to have Vincent. It's all made up. Well, let, let's talk about it. Vincent Hill enlisted in the Army and served eight years in counterintelligence. Upon leaving the military, Vincent became a police officer in Nashville, Tennessee. While serving the community of Nashville, he was assigned to patrol the flex unit and narcotics. Along with his military and law enforcement background, he's a licensed private investigator in Tennessee as well. He's the author of two books, Playbook to a Murder and Incomplete Pass, which investigate the murder of NFL quarterback Steve McNair. Now, outside of hosting Law and Crime, which we mentioned as well, he is a regular law enforcement analyst on national TV, appearing on such networks as Fox News, HLN, CBS, ID Discovery, Oxygen, and TV One. A lot of people who are listening probably have seen Vincent before. Vincent himself hosts his own weekly podcast called Beyond the Badge, which discusses the latest police stories from a police officer point of view. Beyond the Badge airs Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on RadioInfluence.com. So everybody out there, big welcome to Vincent Hill. Hey, man, I'm telling you, that stuff's made up, man. <laughs> well, I keep having people like, hey, I saw a guy that looked just like you on TV. I keep saying, I need that check because... I'm not getting it. Well, let me tell you something. Whoever wrote that, you should hire them then. Really? Because yeah. that's pretty great. And I got to say, good, I, I listened to uh, your podcast this morning, and it was great. Um, it's like same same type like length as us, like 30, yeah. 40 minutes. Uh, except he's a professional and yeah, knows what he's doing. Yeah, except he's actually doing. a professional. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, Vincent, yeah. I want to ask you the first question. I've been meaning to ask you this all week. I think we teased it last week that we're going to bring you on. If you're in a situation, okay, currently, today, you walk out there, and you see something go down, right? Are you prepared to jump in? Oh, the cop never leaves the body. You oh. know, you, you can leave the uniform, but you never leave that job. So I would, in a heartbeat, jump into something. It's I, like a reflex, right? It's, it's a reflex. It's all, it's all muscle memory. That's how we train. That's how we train every year. That's how we trained every day. Everything's muscle memory. So if I walked out and saw a mugging, the cop in me is going to react to it. Now, 20 minutes later, I'm going to sit here and say, man, that was really stupid. But... That's just the cop in me. I love that you'd come back on our podcast 20 minutes later after <laughs> stopping a mug at you. Can I continue? <laughs> yeah. have, you, have you had any situations like that? Uh, since I left the department? S yeah, since you left. You know, I've had a few. I was actually, uh, true story, last Christmas my son and I were at the Sprint store. Uh, I was getting the iPhone 10. I was giving him my iPhone 8. And these two guys walk in. They're in there for like 10 minutes. I just knew they were up to no good. I just knew they were up to no good. You could sense it. Oh, yeah. So... Ten minutes go by, they pull out a pistol. So the first thing my son says, and this is how anyone that knows me knows I would react, he said, Dad, don't do anything. And that was the one day I left my pistol because I'm licensed to carry right. it in Georgia. I left it at home, and there was something that kept saying, go get your pistol. But I, I ignored it. So even my son knew if, if I had my pistol, I would have reacted because the law says I can protect citizens if there's a threat, and they were armed. So he, he even knew 
Yeah, my dad's about to do something. Well, what would you have done exactly? How would you have canvassed the area? Yeah. Like, how would you? What would you have done? Well, you know, it's the police officer's job to eliminate the threat. Now, here's this guy in here. He had a, a 45 caliber handgun. Uh, I didn't know if he was going to shoot anybody, right? And you know, he could say, "Well, I was going to shoot him in the leg," or I can shoot someone in the leg, but a bullet is made to kill someone. So it's still my job, my mentality, to eliminate that threat. And there were two guys there that were a threat. So. Had I been armed, I probably would have eliminated the threat. So, so had you been armed, would you have, you know, removed your pistol from the holster and like what would what would have been the process of eliminating the threat? Well, he, let, let me put it in police terms: two to the body, one to the head. Right? <laughs> oh wow! So, there's no doubt in my mind that's exactly what I would have done. Is that a double shot? Was it double tap? Double tap. Oh my gosh! Double tap. Because again, I don't know what this guy's motives are. Yeah. Right? What his intention? When you pull out a gun, the intent is to shoot someone. Right. You know. Whether it's accidental, whether it's on purpose, that's the intent of a bullet. So, so you, so it's not like the movies where they like, oh, we'll shoot you in the leg, like you said, or shoot the, you know, the no. arm. It's no. you have to do it. I always, I always joke about it, but it's true. If a police officer shoots someone in the leg or in the arm, it's because they missed center mass. It's not because they were aiming for the leg or the arm, and it's not like bad boys where they shoot you in the hand and shoot the guns out. Police are trained to put. Two right here, and if that doesn't work, put one right here. So I have a question. If someone walks into a convenience store and they're holding a gun to the cashier and you don't know whether they'd actually kill anybody or not for sure, I guess, they might just be threatening them so they can get the money. But as, as a police officer, do you have to assume that they are going to kill someone and then you have authority to take action and kill them you too? have absolute authority because okay. anytime there's a weapon, whether it's a cutting instrument or a gun, that's considered deadly force. And you don't know what that intent is. Right. And you can't go back later and say, well, why do you let him go? Well, I didn't suspect he was going to shoot him, right? Because then you're liable, too, for not eliminating the threat. So you have to act on it in that split second. Vincent, do you think, though, it's like something in you, too? Like, do you think anybody could get the training and have that feeling that you have of walking in there and knowing when something's wrong? Or is there something innate in you? Well, I think anybody can get the training, right? You can sit through like at the police academy in Nashville, six months. A lot of that was law. We learned a lot of law, uh, Tennessee law. You can you can sit through that, but if it's not in your, your nature or in your, your spirit to walk in and say, you know what, that doesn't look right. You, you're not going to get this job, right? And you're, you're going to be set up for failure. Like prime example, you know, I could look at a car and just by the way someone would glance over at me and give me the deer in the headlights, something's in that car, right? You just have to pick up on those little clues. And then, of course, you try to initiate a traffic stop once they've done a traffic violation. The pursuit starts. You catch the, the bad guy. There's a gun. There's drugs in the car. So you, you have to have that, that niche, if you will, to, to do that job successfully. Traffic stops are probably the scariest thing for an Tra officer. Yeah, traffic stops are the number one. I would say number two is domestic, right? Because uh -huh. in both cases, you don't know who or what you're dealing with. And when you're approaching a car... A, you don't know who's in the car. B, you don't know what their intentions are if they just kill 20 people. And C, you don't know what's in the car. So I lost count of true story how many times I walked up to the car and someone had a gun just waiting to shoot. Luckily, a lot of my career, I was working nighttime. So what I would do, I would shine my spotlight, of course, on the, the driver's side mirror and go behind my car so I didn't silhouette myself mm -hmm. and just walk up to the passenger side and watch. And you'd, you'd see that person just sitting there, you know, waiting to shoot you. Or they go over to the trunk 
are to the glove box and they're making all kind of furtive movements, they open the glove box and there's that gun they're trying to grab. So, What did you do when you saw the gun in their hands? Uh, I politely told, well, not so politely, told them that uh, one of us isn't going to make it home and it won't be me because I got a family to take care of. And if they move, that they're dead, right? Mm. Because right. Th- there's, there's no taking that bullet back once it's out of the chamber. So I would tell them, if you move without dropping that gun, it's over for you. And uh, and you're always wearing a vest when you're on when you were on patrol, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Even when I was working on narcotics in the CSU unit, I wore sure. a vest. Uh, you know, funny story. It's funny now. It wasn't funny then. Uh, one time I was out working narcotics. I saw this guy doing hand-to-hand drug deals. Mm. So I approach him. You know, we we're going to take him down later. So I say, hey, I need an ounce or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, we, we do the handshake, the pound. And he reaches in to hug me. And uh, I got my vest on. So I'm like, oh, shit. Like, he, he felt he's it. Out of you, yeah, yeah, there's no doubt he felt it. I'm right. like, oh, shit, he felt this. So he's like, man, are you wearing a vest? I was like, yeah. I was like, you know how, excuse my French, motherfuckers out here are. They'll shoot you. He's like, yeah, man, I left mine at home today. I said, <laughs> Thank God, right? But he, he wait, do you, th- you think he meant that and not like he was playing you to try and see, like, oh, let me see if this guy's really no, a cop? I, I think he meant it. You know, yeah. I looked at his criminal history after we busted him, so he probably was walking around with a bulletproof vest on <laughs> at you, some point. And you did a lot of undercover work like that? Uh, I was probably undercover, what, six months or so uh, in Nashville. You know, part of it was really fun, and then part of it really sucked because – you have to deal with the lowest of the low, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're out talking to drug dealers, drug users, prostitutes. You're doing prostitution things. And the smell of a prostitute that hasn't bathed in a few days is not the most pleasant thing in the world. And, you know, plus, you know, my ex-wife, she would tell me, you're being an asshole. Because I would come home and I couldn't turn off the guy in the street right. versus the guy at home. So she would have to remind me, you're being an asshole. So. And I and I would think even when you were not technically undercover, you would still need to be in that mindset because what if some of those people saw you out wherever during the day? Oh yeah, yeah and, like, and that that has happened yeah. before. Uh, luckily, it went well, you know. But there's always that chance where you could be out at the mall, my son and I. Yeah. And I saw these three guys. It was a Saturday, and I had arrested them Thursday, and I saw them. And I'm like, oh great, I'm gonna get into a shootout uh-huh. in Rivergate Mall <laughs> with my son here. So one of the guys is like, hey, you're the guy that arrested us, right? It's like, mm, yeah. So, hey, I'm starting to push my son over the cover. Well, we just wanted to tell you, you're the coolest cop we ever dealt with. <laughs> it's like, okay, I appreciate that. They, why, you know? why would they say that? Yeah, why, why they say, yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I always live by the philosophy, you don't have to be a butthole, right? And people, especially in today's society, when they say Their kids listening media, to this podcast, Vincent. I'm sorry, please. I did say butthole. Yeah. <laughs> but... You know, in this society, this day and age, everyone assumes police are just these robots, these bad guys that just walk around and, you do this, you do this. But you don't have to talk to people like that, only unless you need it. So if I came across someone and I said, hey, put your hands behind your back, you're under arrest, and they did it, why do I need to be a butthole? But is that a misconception, or do officers really go on that power trip where they, they do act like that? I've seen it. So for me to say no, I'd be lying, right? Right. I mean, I knew guys I went to the academy with, and I'm like, Dude, you're a butthole. You know, like if you pulled me over, I'd probably curse you out. Like you don't have to talk to people like that. So yeah, it happens. 
I mean, do you think there are officers that you know they're carrying a gun around all the time and might not get to use it very frequently? That some might be trying to find an opportunity where they can get more action or. I don't think so no. because the action typically finds you just like that, right? I mean, it could be the most simple call in the world, and it can escalate from zero to a hundred just like that. You just have to be ready to react to it. Now, are there proactive officers that look for bad guys? Yeah, I was one of them. You know, I, I mean, I was officer of the month, you know, countless times. Uh, yeah, I got a chief's coin for catching a guy that was wanted in Atlanta for murder who claimed he was a uh, Hurricane, Hurricane Katrina refugee. So do we go looking for trouble? Yeah, but do we go looking to be able to lay hands on someone or pull our gun out? Mm. No. So, so when you're a police officer in Nashville and working for the department, like what is, what is their metric of success? They would tell you they don't have one, but that, that wouldn't be true, right? Uh, just like any job, the better your stats are or the better you perform, the, the better perks and promotions you get. Uh, so, you know, a typical night in patrol, I would usually do five or ten traffic stops. Uh, one of those I would guarantee would be a felony. Uh, one night, true story, and I can bring you in my awards book, I caught three stolen cars in one night. So it was just back-to-back -back going to booking. And, and one of the guys I caught was uh, escape. I think he said for murder. And when, when he told me this, I'm like, yeah, he was in a stolen car, and he looked like, uh, what's the guy that paid, played Opie Taylor? Ron, Ron Howard. Mm -hmm. He looked like Ron Howard, and he was just like, well, I just want, want to let you know I escaped from prison on a 30-year murder charge. I'm like, yeah, sure. So I run up to NCIC, and sure enough, you know. So, so when you see that, uh, you know, on, on your monitor, are you, like, what, does your like, muscle memory go into action, or you get like, get a little well, afraid of what's going to happen? I had him in yeah. custody, so yeah. at that point, he, he wasn't a threat. Because uh, I would be scared out of my mind But at that I, point. I thought, yeah. like, what if this guy would have ran, right? Yeah. He's in a yeah. stolen car. He escaped prison. He's already killed somebody. You know, what if he would have ran? <laughs> and, and you... What's the training to remain an officer? Like, you have to be in peak physical condition to do it? Uh, is there, are there requirements? Because, you know, you also see the stereotype that there's overweight officers. So what you, – you, but you're going to be yeah. do, running around doing things. In theory, there, there would be a physical fitness requirement. Uh, there is when you're in the academy? Oh, yeah. When you're in the academy, you, you have to pass certain uh, running times, and there's a lot of running and uh, – physical training, a lot of hand-to-hand -hand combat, and so if you're not one to want to take a punch, don't go into that job. What kind of hand-to-hand sure. hand hand -hand combat? Oh, we would go all out. You know, we'd put on pads and uh, headgear, and I mean, you'd have an instructor ready to try to knock you out, right? So, and there were a few people that actually got knocked out, you know, so if you're the type of person that doesn't like confrontation, don't do it, because right. people will always try police officers, and I unfortunately had a reputation of laying hands on someone because I would always tell people, because they always wanted to fight for some reason. When you don't want to go to jail, you fight. And I'd always tell them, hey, don't let this size fool you. If I touch you, you're going to know you got touched, and you're still going to jail. So I would go down to the booking office, and they're like, so whose butt did you whoop today? I'm like, I tried to tell them, you know, but I've been in some, like, long five, ten-minute fights where it's like, godly, I feel like I'm about to die. Wait, like you, are you proficient in several forms of martial arts or hand-to-hand -hand combat? Like, do you know Krav Maga? Like, how does so, it work? Is so it I took Taekwondo uh, as a kid. I uh, got my black belt. Um, 
I can't remember how old I was, but in the academy, we would do a lot of uh, grappling on the mat. I broke my big toe grappling one time and just a lot of hand-to-hand. And even after the academy, we would just go to the academy, go in the gym, put, pull the mats out, and stay proficient in our ground, in our ground game. And this is, and you went talking about that ten-minute fight that you were in. Like, what was that? Was that at a bar? I had it. No. How can anyone? No. For, for anybody who doesn't know, Vincent, how tall are you? Six one. How much do you weigh, if you mind asking? Uh, two o two. Who's gonna fight with you for that amount of time? Well, the guy was bigger, uh, but yeah, I always live by one rule: have the best cardio, because eventually they're gonna gas out. Uh-huh. I have the same rule. No same matter. rule. <laughs> 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 podcast recording. No matter, yeah. <laughs> no matter how big they are, they may be stronger, but they're going to gas out eventually, right? So, But this guy, I had been waiting the bus for, man, probably a month. And uh, What was he wanted for? Well, I knew he was selling marijuana. Mm-hmm. Like, not just the dime bag. I knew he was selling marijuana. So uh, I sat on his van for like an hour or two one night. It's like 2 in the morning. Because he had a wrong tag, so I knew I'd have probable cause to stop the van. So he finally moves, light him up, and as soon as I get out of my car, that door opens. And you never want to see that as a cop, because you don't know what's coming out of that car. He looks at me, he says, I'm not going back to jail, takes off running. Foot chases on, I grab him, his shirt rips off, and trying to control somebody with no shirt that's sweaty is next <laughs> to impossible. You can't grab him. Are you by yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were by yourself, you didn't have a partner with you? Nope. No, so we were solo cars. That's so but, scary. Unless you were still in the training phase, you were. We were solo. So his shirt rips off. We're tussling. We're tussling. So eventually, reach, reaches down in his waistband, and I check kick him, kick him right in his chest, create distance. I pull my pistol out. I was like, "You're about to die," because I thought he was going for a gun at this point. Pulls out this huge bag of weed from his pants, tosses it on the ground. I'm like, golly! So I reholster. He gets back up. Fights back on. I'm trying to call for backup as I'm fighting. I finally start to hear the sirens coming. But by this point, five or six minutes have gone by, and I'm still tussling with this guy. And, I mean, he did not want to go back to jail. And it was just one of those things where it could have gone bad really quick for either him or I. Because if if I was too quick on that trigger, I would have shot an unarmed guy. Mm -hmm. And then I would have been hung in the media. You know what I mean? But nobody understands those split-second decisions where you, you can't sit there and say, all right, well, maybe it is a gun, maybe it's not a gun. You, you don't have that option. You don't know what somebody's going to really you do at all. You don't know yeah. what someone's going to do. And I always equate it to this. In the military, right, if, if we saw the enemy down downrange, hey, this is Sergeant Hill. I got the enemy coming downrange. Do I have permission to engage? Is it a threat? Not at the time. Enemy's getting closer. Hey, do I have permission to engage? Have they fired at you? Not at this time. In policing, you can't, hey, Sarge, listen, so this guy's reaching in his waistband, and it may be a gun. Do I have permission to shoot him? You don't have that time. Because the second you do that, you're dead. You're hurt. Your family is now having to go on without you. So, you know, I, I always say, even in my podcast, people question police, and they, they assume they know the job, mm-hmm. right? Especially when you got shows like The Rookie and all of these shows on TV that I don't watch uh, because it's not real policing. They question the job, but they have no idea how y- you can either in a split sec- second take a life or lose your life. And nobody wants to wake up and say, you know what? I want to go kill somebody. Because at the end of the day, I was a human being long before I put on that uniform. 
and I don't want to wrap my mind about, yeah, I'm going to go out and kill somebody. That's, that's yeah. just not it. I, I don't watch shows about, you know, hosts of court t- court trials. <laughs> like, you know, there's a lot of those out there. <laughs> totally that, yeah. there. Right. But, you know, Vincent, Vincent's a host here on Law and Crime. How many trials do we cover about police shootings? And the question becomes, were they justified? Were they justified? What do you think about that? Particularly the Jason Van Dyke trial out of Chicago, Illinois. For anybody who doesn't know, you had a, uh, I think he was 19 years old or 17, 17 years yeah, old, 17, a young man, Laquan McDonald, walking down. He was uh, carrying a switchblade, mm-hmm. a knife. He was high on, I forgot what medicate PCP. PCP. Yeah. Uh, the police were following him for some time. They were engaged with him. They were just following him, tracking him, tracking him. They had a, uh, they were going to have a taser unit brought in. Right. One officer, Jason Van Dyke, in the video, which was all caught on um, dash cam footage, you see him tracking him with his pistol, and it appears that Laquan McDonald is walking away from the police, right. and without there's without a second hesitation, he just unloads his weapon and kills this guy. Kills this guy. Shot him sixteen times. Yeah. Um, Found so, guilty, second-degree murder, yeah. 16 counts of yeah. battery. So, And honestly, I think that was the, the, the right verdict, and here's why. Um, anytime you use force as a police officer, you have to be able to articulate that a reasonable police officer would have reacted the same way. Was it reasonable to shoot him 16 times or to even shoot him? So you had all of these other officers following him for several minutes. You see him walking away, so... The two words, imminent threat. I didn't see that in watching that dash cam. And, you know, when, when we read some of the reports where they said Laquan continued to try to get up or he lunged at Van Dyke, I didn't see that. You know, and mm-hmm. I'm a trained police officer, so if I was to get on the stand and say, yep, Jason Van Dyke was right, he lunged at him, there was an imminent threat, I'd be a liar, you know, because it just wasn't there. And I... I me personally, I think that could have been resolved a different way. Maybe wait for the taser unit. What was the the rush in eliminating that threat? Because I didn't see a threat. Do, do you do do you carry a taser with you when you were a police officer? Did you always carry a taser no, with you? So okay. you know, just like Chicago, a lot of the yeah. officers there didn't have tasers. Like mm-hmm. Not every officer on the department has tasers. Mm-hmm. I'm sure most of it has to do with the cost. Sure. Uh, standpoint, yeah. and I'm sure there's officers that just don't want to do it. If you think back to uh, uh, what was the kid in in California, they made a movie about it, Furtive Station. Furtive uh, Station, yeah yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Where the Bart officer thought he had his taser, and he actually had his pistol. Mm. I can see how that could happen because you wear your taser on your dominant side as well. So there's a, a large population of officers that don't even want tasers for that reason, right? And then there's a lot of departments that only two or three people in the entire precinct may have them. And did you have? A, did you have always have a baton on you too, or is that? Yeah, what, yeah. yeah. So the asp- you you you'd have your ass baton, of course, your pistol, your handcuffs, your pepper spray, uh, and if you were equipped with the taser, your taser. Is that heavy carrying all that stuff? It's about twenty five pounds or so. What else do you have on there? Uh, I always kept two uh, pairs of handcuffs. Uh, one in, in case it was an obese person or if you had to place two people under arrest. Uh, the gun itself is pretty heavy once, you know, when it's fully loaded. You have your two magazines, so all of that just adds a lot of weight. Wow. Yeah. Do, you, do, you, do you miss it at all? I do. Uh, I don't miss it in this climate because, again, it's right. like everybody questions everything the police do. But I, I miss it every day. Like, I could drive down the street and I see blue lights. I'm like, 
oh man, I really want to like go and see what they're doing here. I, I was going to ask you this. You see on TV or even the trials that we cover where officers are in danger, does a part of you like, I wish I was there. I wish I could help them. I wish I, I knew what I could, would be able to help, how I'd be able to help yeah, them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, each trial we do involving police, I, I sit there like, man, if I was there, you know, and it's easy to Monday morning quarterback an officer's decisions, but I think it's more justifiably so if you've done that job, right? So, like, I can think back to the Roy Oliver case where, you know, he shot uh, Edwards yeah. in the car, and I can understand what he thought when the glass broke. It did kind of sound like a gunshot, right? Um, tactically, are there things the officer could have done different? Yeah, absolutely. Just like in, in uh, Tamir Rice in, in Ohio. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we can't argue that Tamir had what appeared to be a gun and the police are training again to eliminate the threat. But are there things officers could have done differently tactically to do that? Absolutely. Like, don't pull up right next to the guy who's going to say, oh, it's just a toy and you think it's a real gun and then you shoot him. So, yeah. Yeah, and I imagine, as sad as it is, when there's fallen officers, do you take it even if you don't know them, even if it's an entirely different jurisdiction, do you feel something for yeah, that? Yeah, I take it personal every time. Right? Yeah. So I think we're up to five already, and it's you know just 15 days, whatever, into, into the year. Uh, and even on my podcast, I have a section at the very end called 10-7. Uh, typically when an officer retires or they go off, off shift, they'll say, I'm 10-7 for the remainder. So you know, I highlight an officer that's been killed in the line of duty. So, so, so you were also in the military for many years, too, eight, eight years in counterintelligence. So what, what was your day-to-day -day like there, and did it, did, is that what led you into being a police officer? Well, if I told you, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> um, Go in the corner, that. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave now. Yeah. Because I think my top secret is still active. I don't yeah. know. But um, it, it, it did kind of lead me to where, where I am. But even as a kid, you know, I, I think maybe – I don't know when Lethal Weapon 1 came out, whatever year. 1987. Not that go. I know that. There you <laughs> go. But, no, but even before that, I think Miami Vice was out. 1984. Was, there you go. So, you know, I, I'm a little older, so I was probably <laughs> in the double digits then. But I remember watching that show. I was like, yeah, I want to be a cop. All right? And then it was like you had all these private detective shows. I'm like, that's what I want to do. And my mom, you know, she thought I'd outgrow it, but I never did. So... I just made a path where I got to where I wanted to be. And, and you were from Tennessee originally? or where'd you No, go? Yeah. so my dad was actually in the Army for 30 years, so mm -hmm. I was actually born in Heidelberg, Germany, uh, and we moved like every three years. That's the military life. Then, of course, when I joined, I moved every three years or so. Uh, it was actually my ex-wife who was from Nashville. Her dad was on the department at the time, and he's like, hey, uh, we're hiring because I was right at the point where I was about to re-enlist and actually go to Germany for six years uh, as counter intel, but it was right after September 11th, and I was weighing my options. I knew where I would be versus where my family would be uh, right after September 11th, and plus my son was born with a cleft lip and palate, and he was maybe five months old when that happened, and I knew he was going to have a lot of surgeries coming up. So. Mm. I just uh, decided not to re-enlist and went to the police department. Do you think about what your life would have been like if you were still enlisted? You know, I, I do because, you know, I would have retired. I don't want to age myself too much, but I would have retired at 41 a few years ago. And, you know, I got friends that are retired now that I was in the military with. And I'm just like, oh, you're on Instagram in Mexico. Great. Oh, 
you're in the Dominican Republic. Oh, great. Yeah. Screw you. <laughs> so Well yeah, how are they able how are they able to do that? Well, you know, once you retire after twenty years, you know, you, you get uh, you know, whatever your salary is, you get a, a portion of that, a percentage of that, and I'm sure a lot of those guys, like I'm in the process of doing too, are getting uh VA benefits, you know, from injuries that you get over over time. Like, you know, I got two bad knees. I'm I'm still a little hard headed because I still run every day. I got a torn shoulder. You know, all of this stuff from the military. So right. Yeah. And I guess the question is, with like going to the going from the not everybody can be an officer, correct? There's a screening process. How yeah. much is that screening process? It's different than the military, or, or is it the same thing for the military? Like, just because you have a desire to go, and let's say you're still physically in peak right. shape, doesn't mean you have the ability to do that, well, right? Well, you know, thankfully, a lot of departments, you either have to have a college degree or X amount of credit hours plus military service. So, you know, thankfully, I had both. Uh, you know, there's a psychological evaluation you have to go through and pass that, the physical test, the written test. You know, the psychological exam will ask you the same question 15 different ways. Like, have you ever slept with your mother? Hmm. Have you ever had thoughts of having intercourse with your mother? Like, these are, like, <laughs> questions that they ask, right? You know, have you ever watched any movies, you know, about having sex with – what? Like, it would be really bad if you said yes to that. I guess that would be like a, yeah. a, an alarm bell. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, where's my gun? Yes, I have, you know. Yeah. Do I get the gun today? Then, of course, there's a, a polygraph. You know, they ask you the, the questions, have you ever smoked weed? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Can, can people fake a polygraph? Be honest. Can Absolutely. It, yeah? Yeah. How you do it? <laughs> you can't put that out on the air, but man. it's possible to do. Yeah, it. it's, yeah, it's absolutely possible. Did you go to college after the military or before? Uh, a little bit of both. I went before and while I was in. You know, um, one of the great things about the military is they pay for your education. The GI Bill, uh, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I I took some classes while I was in. Uh, I know in California, I'm sure in New York as well. When I was stationed in New York, so. And they, I don't know why I just thought of this. So Vincent's the hardest working man I think I know. He takes flights here like every week, early flights. You get to go on before anybody else, don't you? Yeah. Act, act on the airplane. You know what I mean? They're like any past or active. He deserves it. Yeah, he yeah. gets it. That's a, uh, that's a good benefit. It is a good benefit, yeah. yeah. Like, and I use it too, trust me. Like, uh, I'm sure you do. And I, I use the free meals on Veterans Day too. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to go back to the Logitech. You, um, or Polygraph, you, you, but you can tell yourself when somebody's lying. You have the ability to see that, right? Yeah, you know, because machines could be, you know, tested and, and you know, tricked. You know, it's a machine. But, you know, prime example, uh, I was on a traffic stop, and I'm asking this guy, hey, what's going on? He had the wrong tags, and he kept going in his right pocket. And I knew something was in that right pocket he didn't want me to see. But if I'd have, you know, just asked a random question on the polygraph, is there anything in your right pocket? No. But it was his body language. Every time I'd say, "Hey, man, take your hand out of your pocket." Okay, you take it out for a second. You put it right back in. Like, yeah. Okay. So what's in your pocket, right? So, it, body language to me is way more uh, telling than than some machine. Uh, why are you not in Vegas? <laughs> <laughs> what am I not getting here? Part of like the counting cards yeah, team. Yeah, why right, why, right, why right, you not playing right, Texas Hold'em poker? Right, that's right. <laughs> did um did you ever like when they brought people back to the station? Did mm. you do the interrogations there? Um, not really, because we we would always take them down the booking 
uh, you know, right off the bat, especially in patrol. Mm-hmm. You, of course, you'd read the, their rights, and, you know, if they make a statement, they make a statement, and you start asking questions that way. Were you always thinking in your head, like, if I was you, I would not say anything right now? Oh, I've told people that. <laughs> yeah. Like, now I'm going to read you your rights. You were smart. You wouldn't say a word. I've yeah. told people that. Uh, the guy mentioned that that was wanted for murder in Atlanta. Um, the backstory to it is I arrested him. Uh, we were on a domestic, and I thought it was him because the roommate's like, yeah, he fled the scene. So I'm driving down the street. I see this guy coming back across. Long story short, he gives me this fake name, tells me his social, comes back to a white lady. This guy's a 6'2 black guy. I'm like, mm, that's not you. He's like, well, um, my name is... I think he said Anthony Brim. So I run that, New Orleans. I'm like, well, this says you're 5'6", 250. It's like, man, did you like... Gross bird. Yeah, like, <laughs> did you grow after you were an adult? Yeah. Right, so I, I take him down, I book him for criminal impersonation because, uh, you know, he gave a fake social, fake name. Daggone CODA system was down, so we couldn't get prints on us. I'm like... Listen, man, if you got a failure to appear, I'm thinking it's like something simple, like he didn't show up to court. Right. Just let me know. We're going to find out. Man, I don't know what you're talking about, blah, blah, blah. So the next day, my wife and I, ex-wife, let's put that out there, uh, (laughs) (laughs) we're at dinner. My phone rings. It's a buddy of mine at the sheriff's apartment. He's like, hey, man, uh, that guy you brought in last night, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anthony Brim. He's like, no, nah, that's not his real name. His real name's Jimmy Brooks. He's wanted out of Atlanta for murder and cocaine charges. Ooh. By the FBI, I'm like, please tell me, please tell me you still have him. He said, man, we were about to release him when the FBI called. So wow. I said, cool, put him back in the holding cell. I was working midnights at the time. I said, I'll be down tonight to uh, do the fugitive from justice warrant. So I get down there. He's standing there. I tap him on the shoulder. I was like, I told you we were going to find out who you were. It's like, all right, man, I'm so glad you caught me. I'm tired of being on the run. I'm like, no, you're not, because you would have told me last night. Well, I'm going to tell you what happened. I really didn't kill her. I'm like, dude, stop. Like, stop. I do not want to get a subpoena to go to Atlanta. Right. Shut your mouth. He's like, no, 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 I'm going to tell you, man. Like, uh, she shorted me $5 for some crack, so I just punched her, and she hit her head on the concrete. I'm like, but she died. Well, after the family took her off life support, I'm like, well, if you wouldn't have hit her and she wouldn't have hit her head, she would be alive. Yeah, but I didn't kill her. Like, you did kill her, man. <laughs> are, are, the, are the majority of people that you've come across in your career, are they a product of poor education? They're not thinking the right way? Or are they just people that you've met, realistically, mm. who are pure evil? You just look at them and you say, that is just a bad person. Oh, I, I've, I've met all kinds, you know, uh, poor economic background uh i had a vanderbilt doctor trying to buy crack cocaine when we were doing reverse buys when i was working narcotics you know and he, he tried to tell me well i was just buying it to take to the media to prove you guys are selling drugs it's like well i know i'm selling drugs because i'm the police and that white van over there has a camera in it it is the media so y- you get a different you get all walks of life but you do meet that one person where you're like you're just pure Evil, just evil. Yeah. No redeeming them. The no. prison, the criminal justice is not. The prison no. system's not going to reform them. No, like the guy that shot his grandmother in the face with a shotgun for her six hundred dollars social security check. That's evil. 
like you needed six hundred dollars to fix your habit that bad that you shoot your grandmother in the face with a shotgun? And are most of the people that you've come across repentant after? Are they apologetic of what happened or they don't understand really the problem? Uh a little bit of both. Those would know? be the evil people. Yeah, you know, a little bit of both. Um and then you just get the excuse my French, the dumb ones. Like why'd you do that was just stupid. Right. What you did. That was <laughs> yeah. just dumb. Uh, I can't do that. No, stupid. You can't. <laughs> how did you? How did you decide like which ones to let go? Like, because I feel like there's situations out there where like say maybe somebody has a little bit of weed on yeah, them, yeah, they get yeah. cut by the cops, yeah. and they get a, a warning. Like, yeah. So there's this thing called officer discretion, right? Like, yeah. I can't tell you how many crackheads I let go because I didn't want to go down to jail with crack pipe. Like, hey, step on this and get out of here, right? <laughs> like, it, every, I think every officer has used that officer discretion, even. You can even use it for a DUI, like if I pull you over and I know you're intoxicated. Like, I tell you what, I'm not going to take you to jail, but you're not driving this car. So what you're going to do, you're going to call a friend who's sober, you're going to park this car here, and you're going to get out of here. Well, you've talked about marijuana a few times, and you talked about the value of, you know, police resources should be used for when there's a real issue. Do you, what would you say to people who say marijuana should be legalized everywhere? Um, it's a waste of resources for law enforcement when they should be really going after people who are doing really bad crimes. I agree and I disagree. Um, of course, marijuana has medicinal purposes. We can't argue that, right? I've seen it personally. Uh, but on the flip side, it is an intoxicant. So I can't tell you how many DUIs or wrecks I've worked because somebody was smoking weed. So the problem with that is if we legalize it, there's no breathalyzer test for marijuana. You know, mm-hmm. if I pull you over... Hey, you've been smoking weed? Mm-mm. Well, here, blow into this so I can tell if you're smoking weed. There's not one of those tests, right? And then you let that person go. They go out and kill a family of four because their reflexes were so laid back because they just smoked one. But let's say the technology did develop where they could test it. I mean, do you? wouldn't it be easier to not go after all the people who are selling it, you know, just distribution channels? I mean, you, if you're really just focusing on, okay, now we'll, we'll deal it the same way as – Drunk, drunk driving. I, I think so if it was legal for recreational purposes, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of places are making it legal. A lot of places are saying, oh, it's only for medicinal use. So I think if it was legal like alcohol, per se, right, where you could just use it for recreation, and if the technology caught up, then, yeah, absolutely. You, you may want to look at switching those resources because let's not forget the hard drugs that are still out there you know the heroin which we've all heard about the heroin epidemic you know crack cocaine still big uh, meth you know so there's still a lot of drugs out there that are just killing people and causing a ton of crime and people say too that it's like a gateway drug for some of the more hardcore things out there too yeah 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 absolutely i I wouldn't know i i never smoked weed in my life and that's a true story because i always thought my dad would just kill me so yeah. Even at 72 years old, I think he'd kill me. So <laughs> I don't want to mess with him. <laughs> God bless him. That's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did your kids want to become a police officer? No. Yeah. And, and they didn't want me to go back. I thought about going back a few years ago. They just said, no way. I said, why? I did it before. They're like, yeah, we were much younger, and we didn't know how crazy you were. Because, again, they know I'm gung-ho, and I'm that guy that, oh, you're about to rob someone? Not on my watch. But wait, you don't necessarily have to go back to being a uniform police officer. Couldn't you try to be a detective? Would you want to be a detective? I would love that, but anytime you go back to a department, it's essentially like starting over, right? So oh, I still really? have to put my time in, in patrol. And 
that there's a spot open up, and if I pass the test, then you could become a detective. That's the goal, right? A lot of people want to become detectives. Yeah, a lot of people do, but you'll be surprised. A lot of people, they just love eight hours of patrol, you know. They just put on that uniform, go out and do their job, and they go home. You know, when you're a detective, you know, say in a homicide unit, you could be at home at 2 in the morning, and that phone goes off. You can't ignore it. You know, at least on patrol, right. you get off at 11 o'clock, you're off until the next day. So, right. Wow. And, and, you know, we talk about the issues like, you know, marijuana. We talked earlier about police shootings. One of the big things that, I mean, we'd be remiss not to talk about that is a criticism of the criminal justice system is that is their inherent racism, you know, in terms of um, let's first start with law enforcement, you know, boots on the ground. Do you see that? Did you see any of that? There was an abuse of power where it was racially motivated? You know, if you had asked me this question 30 years ago, I'd have said, yeah, absolutely. Um, but having done this job, I worked in the projects of East Nashville. Not because I was like, ooh, I want to work the projects. Or not because I had an issue with fellow black people. It was because police divvy their resources based on crime demographics, right? So if crime demographics are higher in a certain area, you're going to have more officers there. And again, from a different demographic standpoint, typically on any department, unless it's like Atlanta or maybe even Dallas, you typically have more white officers than you do black, right? So when I was on the flex unit, I was the only black guy on the unit of five people. What is the flex unit exactly? So we were uh, in uniform, but we weren't answering calls for service. We'd do uh, drug interdiction, traffic stops. We'd go out and serve warrants, you know, kicking a door like, hey, police are here. You got a warrant. So let's go. Um you know, I was, out of five people, I was the only black guy there on the team. And again, I don't think it was because that's what they wanted to do from a racial standpoint. A, we had more white officers, and B, mm -hmm. you always focus your resources where crime's higher. Like, okay, in Brentwood, Tennessee, which is a suburb of Nashville, you may only have two cars in that precinct at one time, active. But in East Nashville, where you got robberies going off, every five seconds you got burglaries you got stolen cars going off you got drug deals going on you're going to focus your resources there and i always tell people think about this let's use uh I'm trying to think of, of a good case i don't want to use van dyke because i told you my thoughts on this like roy oliver for instance or even tamir rice these cases that have made national news the officer does not have the say-so to say, hey, is the suspect black? Like Alton Sterling in, in uh, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. A white officer can't say, is he black? Well, I'm not going because I'm white and I don't want any trouble. They just have to go to the call. Right. And they're looking for the individual that was broadcast over the radio. So Michael Brown, for instance, hey, it was a male black with khaki shorts, red flip-flops, and a white T-shirt and a red hat. So when that officer Wilson saw that, he didn't wake up that day and say, you know what, I'm going to go kill a black guy. No, right. it was he was answering a call for service right after an incident in the store. So a lot of people assume there's this influx of racism going on in policing when it's really, in my opinion, just demographics. And it's just the nature of the job because you can't say, I'm not going because they're black. Well, the, the other side of that is maybe, like you said, they didn't wake up that morning intending to do that. But once they're put into a situation and they see who they're looking at, 
they make a decision that's mm-hmm. maybe that that moment motivated by something that's other than doing would, the right thing. I would I would still disagree. Again, it's a split second decision, and one of the things you don't hear in the mass media, and I, I talk about this on my show, is year over year for the last five years, more white people have been killed by police, whether it was uh, tasers, uh, handguns, use of force, just hand to hand. But those are the stories you don't hear about because you can't say, well, this white officer shot and killed this white kid unarmed, and it's racism. So prime example, we all heard about Michael Brown and Ferguson, but just two days later, a guy by the name of Dylan Taylor, an unarmed white kid who was 19 years old, was shot and killed by police. And if you look up that video on YouTube, that is one of the grossest things I've ever seen because it was captured by body cam. Mm-hmm. But because it didn't fit, oh, well, it has to be a race card, you didn't hear about that story. But it's the same scenario. Police got called. Again, he couldn't say, well, I'm not going because it's an unarmed white kid. Hey, these kids, I think they're about to rob the 7-Eleven. You see Dylan with his hands in his pockets. Hey, take your hands out of your pockets. Take your hands out of your pockets. He starts moving. He shoots him. Is that any different than Michael Brown, in my opinion? Absolutely not. But those are the stories you don't hear about. I mean, I think the conversation also extends to the courtrooms as well, that if there's someone on the stand who's a certain race, a jury might assume maybe guilt over innocence sometimes and perceive a higher, jan- a higher danger. Right, because, I mean, let's be honest, that's the narrative we hear. Mm-hmm. Like, white officer shoots black teen. And, and listen, I put myself in every one of those situations. You know, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, uh, Alton Sterling. Um, and I always question, if I was the officer that did this shooting, would you hear about it? Would, would it fit the narrative of it was racism? Because how are you going to call me racist if I shot this, this black guy mm-hmm. when I'm doing my job? You know, again, it goes back to, hey, policing, you don't have that time to say, hey, I'm a white guy, you're a black guy, do I have your permission to shoot you? You, you just don't have that. And you, 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 what people don't realize, when I approach someone, and listen, I've had white people pull guns on me. You know what I mean? When I approach someone, I'm not looking at color. I'm not looking at size, gender, race. I'm looking at if your intent is to cause harm to me. And I'm going by the use of force continuum. There's eight steps in the use of force continuum from verbal commands all the way up to deadly force. And that means if you do X, I can do Y, because the law says I need to use the amount of force necessary to affect the arrest. So if you go from, hey, I tried to arrest you, you resisted, to you immediately pulled out a gun, I don't have to go through steps two through eight, because you've already escalated this to deadly force, and the law says I can use deadly force. And you know, even those people that say, oh, he was unarmed, I can go down the list of officers that have been killed by quote-unquote unarmed suspects because unarmed without a weapon doesn't necessarily mean you can't kill someone or that you can't get my gun after you beat me to a pulp and then shoot me with it and then flee the scene. There's been tons of stories of just people putting their hands in their pocket. You don't know what's in there, and the officer starts to assume it's a gun. Right. I mean, it it goes back to that guy I was telling you about that kept putting his hand in his right pocket, and that ended up being another fight that I was in. Well, the Van Dyke one was – I remember I read something. So the guy had a knife, right? Right. They were saying that there was a problem in Chicago. There was projectiles being shot from knives, 
And they were like, oh, well, maybe that's something that should have been considered. Now, that never came up in the trial, but like when people were discussing it, were like, oh, well, maybe that there was a prevalence of that kind of weapon on the street. It, it could be. Like, I've never known a knife to shoot projectiles. I mean, maybe that's one of those new things. But, it, again, it goes back to what I said. When I watched Van Dyke's shooting, I didn't see an imminent threat there. Like, yeah. I saw him advancing mm-hmm. towards Laquan as he's walking away. So, I can't justify that shooting in, in my professional opinion, you know? Yeah. And I think, really, uh, unless you've been in that line of danger, you don't truly understand sure. what it feels like to be in that situation. You can hear right. all the expert witnesses that are out there, right. yeah. but it's a total different and, feeling. And keep in yeah. mind, like, you, you, you can't, like, hit the pause button like you're watching a movie or, oh, let me play this in slow motion. Right. Like, everything's, like, super fast. Super fast. Super fast. And then you go back later and you're like, what happened? Yeah. Right? And then when people say, well, why do you have to rely on the, the body cam? Because you got a million things going on that you don't know what, what happened because you can't process everything at once. Do you like that the body cams are now being universally used? Oh, I love it. You do? Yeah, I love it. Uh, I think, you know, because, you know, what you see a lot is, especially on Instagram or World Star or whatever, right. you see a 10-second clip of someone like, ooh, look what he's doing to him. Well, you didn't see what happened before. the two, three minutes before right. this escalated. So I think body cam... A, there's that accountability factor, and then B, it shows the entire story because you know we've all seen those videos where it's like one guy's on the ground and an officer's on top of him trying to handcuff him and he's resisting. You don't have to treat him like that. Well, let me see what happened before because I assure you this officer didn't just jump out of his car to a random guy and just get on the ground. Right. It doesn't happen that way. Yeah. Now there's a show about it. Dash cam. What, what's it called? Dash cam PD, I think. Yeah, it's on yeah. Live PD? No, no, no. There's no, live PD, and now there's a dash cam show, too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. It's a spinoff. It's with the sticks. Yeah. Oh, sticks. I know that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so one last question. Um, what's the best way to get out of a traffic ticket? <laughs> <laughs> Good thing I'm not pulling you over. Yeah, no. <laughs> but people there, always debate about this. There so, wouldn't yeah. be a way. Uh, you know, listen, I would, I would say, and I say this with anything, you know, compliance. Like, if, if I roll up to your car, it's like, hey, the, you know, I'm Vincent Hill, Officer Hill, the reason I stopped you, blah, 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 you have your license registration, sure, Officer, here you go. You know, I'm still going to check to make sure you don't have any warrants, right. like, you know, you didn't kill your family and you're wanted in another state, uh, but, you know, kindness and respect goes a long way. Um, there's been plenty of times I didn't write people a ticket, you know, just because. It's like, well, they were cool, like, I could write you this speeding ticket and have you come to traffic court, but I'm not going to do it, so slow down. But, you know, the the minute you start, what the heck you stopped me for? Well, because you're speeding. Oh, you, uh, really? You know what? I think I'm going to write that ticket, and <laughs> I'm going to write it really slow. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Vincent's the nicest guy in the world, so how anybody could not be nice to you during a traffic stop would be funny. But it's also funny because you, you're really the nicest guy, and then you read – about Vincent's bio, you hear him speak, and it's like, that's what's so cool. It's not what you'd expect. Everybody expects, like, the toughest guys. It's probably because he can keep his calm. You know? Yeah, that's yeah. what it is. Yeah, you do learn that on the job. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. keeping your calm, for sure. Well, uh, thanks for coming on, and, and thank you for your service. No, it was yeah. a pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate it. We'll have to do it again one day. And uh, just tell everybody again when they can listen to your podcast and uh, when they can see you. So the podcast is on Radio Influence, radioinfluence.com, every Tuesday at 8 p.m. And, of course, you can subscribe on Apple iTunes and listen to past episodes. And I want to thank 
all the men and people that listen to the podcast so far. Absolutely. All right, Vincent Hill, and we will be back next week. Bye.